Good morning. Uh, the new year is upon us, right? My name is Derek. I'm the pastor here. So if you're new with us, that's who I am. And uh, as I said last week, I'll be here all year. And so uh, love to get to know you. Mark chapter 1, if you have a Bible. And uh, the passage that Lindsay just read is the one that we'll sort of move through a, a little bit here and there. And um, it's going to set the pace for us uh, really for the, for, the, for the rest of this series, which I'll actually explain at the end of the sermon. I just kind of want to get right to uh, some of the things in the text. It's an interesting story because it's Jesus being baptized. And so if you're halfway awake, you're probably asking, is there really a need for Jesus to be baptized? And is anybody asking that question? Okay, well, that's okay. I mean, you can ask those questions here. Uh, I ask those questions as we're writing these things too. And so it's a very interesting text. It's full of beauty. It's got some wonder to it. But it's really odd, too, because Jesus, you know, Mark takes us into the Jordan, uh, into the valley where Jesus hooks up with his cousin John in the river, and John baptizes him. Now, the Mark text, uh, all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they mention the baptism of Jesus. And Mark's is the most, you know, one verse, boom, baptized, done. Everyone else has more of a story, so I'll allude back and forth, and if you want to take some notes on the other ones, um, then you can do that. But again, I think at the end of the day, it's a really interesting and odd story because, again, it's, it's the Son of God being baptized. But if you think about it, baptism is just weird anyway, is it not? Have you been here when we've done a baptism before? It's just, and let me just explain it this way. Um, I got this in the mail uh, I think about three or four weeks ago. And it's really small, sorry. We don't have the technology to like blow this up on the wall for you, but um, this is what you get. I did find a plug to plug this in, so that's kind of nice. But it's the thing that has like the pictures that scroll. It's the digital picture frame. Are you with me? I still have records, so this is sort of a new thing for me. <laughs> um, and so it was sent to me by, and it, you can come up here and look at it later, but there's a sticker on here that says Stadia. And Stadia is this organization that helped actually start this church back in 2004. So we've had a long relationship with them, and we've actually given them money uh, each and every year over the last eight years. We're approaching our ninth birthday uh, this, coming, um, this coming February. It's crazy. And over the course of the last eight years, they sent me the numbers uh, towards the end of the year last year. We've given over $100,000 towards church planting. And for Stadia... They look at about 50 grand helps get a church off the ground. So we have essentially, effectively, helped start two churches somewhere, uh, both in the States, and then they also do a lot of work in uh, Ecuador as well with Compassion International. So, as a thank you for $100,000, <laughs> they sent me this picture frame, and because when I opened it, I was like, all right, I've always wanted one of these. But I noticed it already had a, a, a thing in it. Again, I don't know what this is called, but the thing that holds the pictures, the magic. And the pictures are scrolling. And I, I watched them for a few minutes because uh, there's not a, a terrible amount. But um, I watched them for, and I recognized some people in there. And um, it's all the churches that they started over the last year. So it's kind of a cool, like, hey, this is what has been happening uh, around the country. And you've been a part of that. Now, a lot of the pictures... You know, maybe a third of them are pictures of church events, worship services, picnics, whatever. But a majority of the photos are of baptisms. And I thought, well, that's a good move, right? 
Because baptisms tell a greater story than, um, like, check out our band, right? You know, whatever. Those come and go. Not to put down our band. They're great. But it's, it's a different kind of story. Like, one, you know, the stories of look at our venue, look at our band, look at all of our people, look at our tents with the logo and the cool church name like Breathe or Bridge or whatever. And, um, <laughs> and so um, there's those pictures which really just tell the story of we've mobilized some people and we're all in on this. But the baptisms tell a different story. The baptisms tell a story of really the ending of one journey and the beginning of a new journey. And the ending of the one journey is, I mean, if you think about every baptism and every photo has a similar story behind it, there's a journey of someone moving from doubt to faith and then to commitment. That's the story. And for some people that takes 15, 20, 30 years. For some people it's faster. But whatever the case may be, there's always a story, and that's the story. Moving from, okay, I'm looking at Jesus. There's some things that the Bible says about him. I don't know if I believe those. And somehow down the road, I'm all in. And baptism uh, is something that happens all throughout the New Testament when someone becomes a follower of Christ. So it's this way into what the Bible calls the kingdom, living the kingdom, entering the kingdom of God. Baptism becomes one of those doorways into that. So those pictures are really cool. There's beauty in those pictures. But there's also uh, a humiliation factor in the photos because let's just face it, we all look funny, wet. I mean, maybe you're a model, you know, who poses for shampoo ads and you look great with wet hair. But the majority of us look ridiculous when we come out of the pool. Uh, Amen? Right. I mean, it's the first thing we think of. Like, just the other day, uh, we were talking about what are we going to do for Thanksgiving? We've always gone to Disney World or whatever uh, with our family. But we're just kind of like, you know, we've seen the mouse, you know. And um, one of the options on the table was, let's go to the beach. What's the first thing you think of when you hear, let's go to the beach? I got to lose weight. I got to do this. I'm not walking around the beach looking like this, especially wet. Um, (laughs) So there, there's a sense, especially if, if you've been here for our baptisms, we clap and whistle and all kinds of things happen. But people come out and, like, we as quickly as we can get a towel around them and, they, and they, they make their way in the back. Because there's a little bit of an embarrassment factor. And the number one reason people are hesitant to be baptized here is because you're here, pretty much. Because it's embarrassing. There's some humiliation to it physically. But there's also some humiliation to it spiritually. Now, it says, look in your text. Uh, in, in Mark, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's a pretty packed verse. First of all, we have the baptism, but added to that, this baptism is for uh, repentance, which means to turn, a, a mindset turn, a turning of the mind, like a changing of thinking. For forgiveness of sins. Now that's just a big declaration there. That this baptism is associated with some kind of forgiveness of the sins that we've committed. And then it says in verse 5, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now Mark isn't saying that every single resident in Jerusalem that made the census is out to see John. That's not what he's saying. It's just all every kind of person has gone to see John. So in other versions, you have, you have religious elites, you have 
you know, bottom of the barrel people, you have sinners and saints and all the in-between people. They go to see John. John is kind of this collector of everybody. And so it says, you know, all of these people went out to see him, confessing their sins. There's that terminology again. And then they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. It's very interesting. Now, John lived in a region. The Jordan River, by the way, sits at the crossroads of the wilderness and the promised land. So symbolically, it's this transition between uh, the wilderness and what God promised his people and, of course, the world. And so it's a nice placement for John. Because John is this person, and we'll look at some scriptures here in a moment, but John is this person who was given before his birth the calling of announcing the coming of the Savior. That's, that's what he had been given even before he was walking. That was his calling in life. And so that's what he did. He grew up and he became this herald, this announcer, this person who stood, at this, in this case, in the wilderness, announcing the coming of, Christ, of the Christ. That was his job. But he also was baptizing people. Now, we don't know a ton about John. We know a lot about some of the surrounding communities and traditions where John lived. One of those, and this is probably where this baptism piece is coming from, but one of those communities that lived out in the wilderness was this community called the Essene community. And they lived around the Dead Sea. If you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, anybody? That community wrote those. And when we found those in 1940-something, that opened up a whole new world of information for us. Scholarship widened. We, we learn more about this community. Well, basically, this is very, very simplistic. This is a lo-fi definition, uh, explanation. But the Essene community essentially hit the eject button and ran from culture because they were very upset about the condition of the world, the condition of culture, particularly uh, the religious elite. They weren't strong enough against the ways of culture. And so this community, they, they started their own community, basically. And they had all these different rituals and rites and all sorts of things they did. Well, one of them was baptism. And baptism is seen in the Old Testament as kind of the ceremonial washing that you did. For example, if you uh, touched a dead animal in the Old Testament, you washed yourself clean of that for obvious reasons. It's a baptism of cleansing, physical cleansing. Uh, If you touched a dead person, uh, then you needed to be washed, right? So, And there's all these different stipulations for that. But in the Essene community, baptism was more about your relationship with God and your display of holiness. And so one of the things, uh, really there are four things about um, the baptism that they practiced that's really interesting. One, it was done for conversion. So if you enter into the Essene community, you're baptized into that community, right? So you're baptized once to get into the community. You're also baptized for repentance, forgiveness of sins, annually. So once to get in, annually to stay in, I guess. You're also baptized without clothes on in front of the whole community. So that's a practice we do not do. Uh, For all kinds of reasons. Now, I don't know why. There's not a whole lot of information on that, but that's just what they did. Part of it has to do with just anything other than you, right, uh, needs to be removed. But the most interesting thing about their baptism was that it was all self-directed, self-administered, like no one baptized you. In fact, no one ever baptized anybody. You always cleansed yourself. So you would enter into the pool or the 
the river or if they were, uh, um, you know, if they had one, some kind of baptistry, which they did. It was called a mikvah, but that's another story. And they would enter into that by themselves, dip down and come back out and then walk out by themselves. Self-administered baptism. But John is baptizing people, which is really a head trip for some of the Pharisees. Notice what it says in John uh, chapter 1. This is real interesting. Uh, John is baptizing, and it says, Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why? Why do you baptize if you're not the Christ? The reason you baptize yourself is because no one can touch you. There can be no tainting of your person. And so the Essene community, there were no baptismal assistants. They were not allowed. So John becomes, as far as we know, the very first person in history that we know of that was actually baptizing people in the river. Why is this important? It's where he gets his name. He's not a denomination. Oh, John the Baptist. So, and you just insert joke here, right? That's what we do. He's not a denomination. The actual term in the scripture is he's John the baptizer. It's kind of a bad translation. He's a baptizer. He's doing the baptizing. And it's very, very interesting because, uh, I'm sorry, hold on. It's very interesting because, again, if you look back in verse 4, baptism is all about the removal of sin. But here's John baptizing people for that. And they've come to him in a repentant kind of uh, posture saying, I need this. And so that he baptizes them. There's really a nice theological uh, sidebar on this as well in that because now baptism is no longer something that you do yourself, it is now a completely at the mercy of someone else kind of thing. It is a complete surrender at this point. It is a complete letting go of all that there is to hold on to. And so John becomes the symbol of what it means to, as Paul would say later, to die in Christ, to be buried with him, and then raised to walk in a new life. And John basically becomes the barrier. He's lowering people in. Now notice what he says about his baptism in verse 7. He says, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He is speaking of, of course, Jesus. And then he says in verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, water is always a part of baptism. He's not saying there will come a day where we don't use water. The word baptize just, it simply means to immerse in water. So it's not that. John is saying the thing that I'm doing for you and with you will at some point become irrelevant when Jesus comes and repurposes the whole thing. That he will repurpose the meaning of baptism and what it does to the person. And this thing about the spirit, like everybody gets the spirit. Everybody uh, has the indwelling of God in their life. And that's something that only God can do. And so that's the background to what John is up to in the wilderness. That's the background of what he's doing. And what makes it altogether strange is that Jesus comes, it says in verse 9, to be from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now again, Mark is a very quick-paced 
gospel. doesn't give a lot of info. He's really only interested in about one thing, and that's getting you to the cross. Uh, I was reading not long ago, uh, the Greek word for immediately happens 34 times in the first nine chapters of Mark. Immediately, immediately, immediately. It's not really that fast. I mean, we just get this feeling that Jesus is just running through the story. But literally, even in this story, immediately he did this, and then this, and then this, and then this. Mark's just pushing us to the final week of Jesus. He just, that's where he wants to go with this. And so all these stories are very quick-paced, and all we get in verse 9 is, oh, and he came and was baptized by John. But in the Matthew account, John refuses. Do you know this story? Jesus comes to him and says, you know, baptize me. And John says no. He refuses it in saying to Jesus that I, I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you, not the other way around. We should switch places. And they have this back and forth, and eventually Jesus is baptized by John in the river. And again, it raises the question to anyone who's kind of awake when they read the scriptures, why does Jesus need to do that? Why, is he, why, does, it, why does he feel necessary feel it necessary to get in the river and be baptized by John? Because if baptism is about forgiveness of sins, if it's associated with that, if that's kind of the root of it, then what is Jesus doing in the water? I thought he was sinless. Well, part of it, yes, and part of it is that baptism, think about if you've been baptized. Part of it is our own bapt, at our own baptism, it's, it's the ending, and I'm using just lofty language here, it's the ending of something old and the entry into something new. That's one of the things that it says. When we're baptized, we are leaving behind an old way, which in our case is our way. Right? Baptism is a great statement of, I'm done just sort of doing things my way. I'm going to go God's way. That's kind of the entryway into that. That's the statement that we make through baptism. That the old ways are gone, which the old ways are me. I'm the old way. The new way is now going to be Lord of my life. The new way is Jesus, the way of Jesus. So our baptism becomes this public statement into that. Does that make sense? This is why Paul says that when you're baptized, you die. Like there's this death and a burial. And I love that language. I mean, he, he really says death first, or then he says burial, then death. It's a burial and then a death. I thought those went the other way around. You're dead and then you're buried. But Paul says you're buried and then you die. It's this kind of, you're in the water, and it symbolizes a total removal of life. And then you're raised, it says, to walk in a new life. So it's a transition point. And it speaks volumes to anyone who's watching that old ways are gone, new ways are on. This is where I'm going from this point forward. Now, Jesus doesn't necessarily have to do that. You know, he's not entering the river as a person struggling with sin. But there is a sense in which Jesus is making the statement, among many statements that he's making with this, but one of them is, it's now completely God's way in my life, the will of my Father, the reason I've been sent here begins now. Every single gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all write their gospels out of order. If you're ever reading the gospels side by side, you'll get confused, and that's okay. Uh, most gospels put Jesus turning the tables over in the temple at the end. John puts it at the beginning. What is happening? Well, they write them out of order based on themes. They're trying to get messages across. But every gospel puts the baptism at the beginning and the resurrection at the end. 
but the baptism because this is when they believed that Jesus began his ministry. Look at verse 1 of Mark 1. That's why Mark says, the beginning of the what? The gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's saying this is the beginning of it. And the first thing that he shows us is the baptism of Jesus. It's Jesus stepping into the water and making a statement to everyone around him that I am being obedient to the call of my Father on my life. I'm now publicly making it known that this is where we're going. He's also associating himself with us. There's a, there's, again, there's another, another direction to go with this in simply saying that Jesus is in the water that symbolizes the removal of sin as a symbol that he is now becoming sin on our behalf. That's a scripture in the New Testament, that Jesus became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is acting that out here, associating himself with our need for him. But I think most of it is just, as he says to John in the Matthew account, this has to be done, he says, to fulfill all righteousness. So this is about being obedient to his father and the call that his father has on his life. It's remarkable. And so it says he's baptized. Look at verse 11. Verse 10 is about how the skies open up and the spirit descends on him like a dove. It says, and in verse 11, a voice came from heaven. So this had to be odd. You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. So somehow, in some way, in some form, when Jesus comes out of the water, a voice from heaven declares, that's my son. You heard it. Everybody was here. That's, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, some wonder if everybody heard that or if it was just Jesus and John, and they looked at each other weird. No, one, it, doesn't, no it doesn't say. But what it does say is that there's been a confirmation At the baptism of Jesus, he is declared the son. You are my son, it says, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now, the pastoral piece here is simple. Notice what John says in the first chapter, verse 12. Uh, It says, yet to all who received him, speaking of Jesus, to those who what? Believed in his name. It's a very interesting phrase. He gave the right to become children of God. Now this is talking about you and me and anyone else who comes face to face with Jesus and makes a decision whether to believe in his name or just move on. Now, let's just talk about this just for a second because this can sound, if we're not careful, because the the term believe in his name or in Christ comes up a lot in the Gospels. We can, we can drop that into the same category as believing in Santa. Like it just doesn't have enough power for us because belief for us is just about facts. Like, okay, great, Jesus probably existed. Probably some of the things he said in the Gospels are true. And he probably died on a cross because many people died on crosses back then. But other than that, I don't know. Or... There's a, there comes a point where someone says, I believe all the facts that are given to me about Christ, and therefore I believe it. Like that's, that's kind of how we, that's where we stop. Believing in Christ is simply about factual information. 
But the phrase, in his name, carries that word believe a little bit further. Because the name of someone, to believe in the name of someone, is to believe everything about that person. And it's to believe that um, not just what they say or what they do, but you, you believe that that's the way that you should direct your life. And so when the Bible talks about believing in Jesus, it's not about, yeah, he was a real guy. It is about turning my life towards him and then leaning into him, trusting him to be the new way of living for me. So to believe in someone's name, Jesus in this case, is to make the decision to live according to that name. And so what John says here is anyone who does that, anyone who believes in his name, God says that they become children of God, his children, sons, daughters of God. And so the pastoral piece here is when we are obedient to the Father, when we say to the world around us, because again, baptism speaks a big message, and that is the old is gone, and the old was me, and the new is you, we become his children. He looks at us and sees us as his children. And that's just a nice pastoral thing to sit on. Like, okay, this is how God views me when I trust him as his child. But I think what's really happening here is if you'll look um, in Mark 15, I think it's on the screen. I don't know why I said if you'll turn, but this is the very ending of Mark's gospel, basically. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus while he's on the cross heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. I mean, Mark bookends his gospel with two declarations that are the same. The same declaration. One from God to his son, you are, you are my son. And then here's the Roman soldier guarding the cross, making sure that he dies, which is what they did. And then Mark makes sure that we know that this is what was said by the soldier, that this was the Son of God, which means that everything in between these two statements in Mark's gospel points us to that story. It points us to this declaration that Jesus is the Son, that he is the Christ, that he is the promised one, and so on and so forth. That's the point of Mark's gospel. That's the point of Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel and John's gospel. It's simply an invitation for us to keep reading, to keep learning, to keep processing who this Jesus is. Uh, let me show you a photo. This was taken, I took this yesterday, actually. Um, it's of the church across the street from the building where we live. And you may know where this is. It's about a little more than a half a mile north on Peachtree. Um, and that's their nativity scene. So I took it yesterday, obviously off to the side because I don't want to get in trouble with the camera on somebody's property. But that's their nativity scene, and uh, it's still up, clearly. I mean, it's January 8th. And they have a live nativity every year, and we go. We run across Peachtree and brave the traffic, and they have free hot chocolate, which lures me in. Um, and their live nativity, it borders on, like, beautiful 
and terrible. Like it's right there. Like it's, it could go either way. It could go either way. Um, it, it's beautiful in the sense that they really tell the story well. It's there, etc. On the other end, it's like we all see that Joseph's wearing Nikes. We, uh, everybody knows that's a llama that you tied a hump to the back to. We know, all right? We can see that. But thanks for the hot chocolate. Um, so we go every year, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but the manger scene's still up. Now, I've been in ministry a long time, so there's two things going on here. Two possibilities. One is that the volunteer who is over the committee, who oversees the team, that sets up the live nativity and takes it down every year, has not checked their email. Or they didn't get the text. You know what I'm saying? Quote, unquote, like, oh, I didn't get your text. You're a liar. Thankful for the new iPhone. It says you got it right here. It says you open it, read it. It even shows me what you were thinking when you read the text. I mean, I know you got my text. Right? So. so there's that possibility that the person over the team that oversees the live nativity did not get the text, and it's still just sitting up there. And the pastor, by the way, is hiding in the shadows because if he goes out there and takes down that nativity from this day forward and forevermore, he will have to do that, right? So he knows. He drove in this morning and went, Ugh, right? That's possibility A. Possibility B, and this is what I think is the case, is that they leave that thing up on purpose. It's a Lutheran church, and um, I know enough about them to know that they run through all the church calendar years, and it's the Epiphany season, which we're celebrating as well, using the same scriptures that they're using, teaching through the same passages and the same stories. And the Epiphany season... In, in the most simplest of terms, you know, there's eight Sundays between Christmas Day and the Lent season, and we don't really know what to do with it. But the Epiphany season sits right in there, and it's about really sitting still and recognizing and celebrating the coming of Jesus. It's not even a time of the year where we apply things to our lives. You're doing that with your New Year's resolutions, I'm sure. But the Epiphany season is simply just to sit still and stare at the stories of Jesus and to just breathe in all those realities, all those claims, and think deeply about all those possibilities, both for the faithful and for those who are seeking and those who struggle with the stories. Those who read about the resurrection say, I don't know. For all of us, it's a time of the year to just listen to stories like the one we've done today and to just take it in. There's no application. It's just an invitation to pay attention and maybe to ask some questions and start the journey. And I think they left this up. I mean, if you think about it, it's Peachtree. So from 6.30 in the morning to 9 in the morning, you know, the tide's rolling in. All the commuters are coming in. And they have to drive by this building and see. I mean, all the gear of Christmas is now put away. I think even the sad tree on top of Macy's is now gone. Like, the, the pink pig is gone. Nothing says Jesus like a pink pig. It's gone. Christmas trees are gone. We finally took our tree down yesterday because we have a meeting tonight in our house. So there you go. Uh, everything's put away. And it's as if this church is saying, 
Yeah, it's all gone, but we have not moved on just yet. I mean, we're coming out of Christmas like the tide of Christmas is rolling back out, and we're waiting for Easter to roll in. But in the meantime, we're just going to sit here for a second, and we're just going to take it in. And we've celebrated this birth, right? But whose birth have we celebrated? That's the point of this season. It's to really wrestle with what we're talking about. And look back at Mark 1, and this will be the last thing we do. Watch how Mark begins this. In the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he quotes two prophets, although he says it's only one. But it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. This all leads into the brief story of John and his role. But within this little quote from Isaiah, he also inserts a quote from Malachi. This is what it says. See, I will send a messenger who will prepare the way before me. Malachi is only four chapters. If you have a Bible, it's the last book of the Old Testament. So, in essence, this is the last thing the Old Testament says. I'll send a messenger, and he will prepare the way for the coming. And if you're familiar with biblical history, this is basically the last thing that the the Old Testament speaks into the people of Israel, and then it goes silent for 400 years. That's it. I'll send somebody. Don't call me. And then it's quiet. And Mark breaks the silence by saying, oh, this is where we left off. I will send someone to prepare a way. And then he points to John. And if John is the one that this is referring to, then Jesus is deeply connected to this story as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. So Mark is saying very clearly, what I'm about to tell you is amazing. So listen, keep reading, keep listening, and keep struggling with who this Jesus is. That's our invitation to you. Over the next few weeks, before we even enter into some of the traditional, here we go towards Easter, let's just sit for a few weeks and just wrestle with who Jesus is. We'll be posting some things on the website for you to grab, just articles, book ideas, maybe even some audio, but just some ways for you to go further in this. Because I can only do so much in 20 20, well, 40 minutes. I can only do so much. Are you with me, though? Stay with us. Don't miss a Sunday. Just sit and breathe in the possibility of Jesus. Amen? We're going to move into communion and then close with a song. And um, the way we'll do that is I'll pray for us. I'll have you stand in just a moment. And then when I'm finished praying, you can make... Uh, your way to one of the four tables, two in the front, two in the back. Um, also, if you've got a bulletin, you can communicate with us and tell us you were here. And on the back of that, you can tell us how to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you, especially uh, if what I've said this morning 
um, has kind of destabilized you a bit, we'd love to pray for your journey towards Christ. So just let us know, uh, and you can um, and you can drop that in the offering bucket as well. So let's all stand together, and then I'll just uh, I'll pray. God, thank you for this um, this story uh, that we've been just honored to to work through. And um, God, it's a troubling story because it it calls us to to do something with it. It calls us to uh, wrestle with uh, all the messages that um, you were sending through the baptism of your son. And most importantly, just the claim at the very front that what we're about to read is ultimately about the fulfillment of your promise to send a savior. And for all that means, um, it's just a big lofty thing to work through. But God, we just thank you for the small pieces that we can grab, that obedience makes us your children. And our trust in you makes us your children. And for all who put their trust in your son's name that, um, that they will be children of God. And so God, as we move through the communion as a community, <clears throat> just speak to us um, in these moments. Encourage us that you have not forgotten us, that, I mean, I cannot imagine centuries of silence. And here we are just so blessed to have your word bound up in like a really cool leather Bible. And so God, we just can't even begin to understand what it's like to not know. But God, your word says in Hebrews that you've spoken to us in these last days through your son so we can just read his stories and there you go. And so as we move to the tables and take the bread and drink the juice, just encourage us. And, uh, and call us into a deeper walk with you. It's in your name that I pray. And everyone said, amen. <clears throat>